about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear this man myself. He replied, Tomorrow you will hear him. The next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and entered the audience room with the high-ranking officers and the leading men of the city. At the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man. The whole Jewish community has petitioned me about him in Jerusalem and here in Caesarea shouting that he ought not to live any longer. I found he had done nothing deserving of death, but because he made his appeal to the emperor, I decided to send him to Rome. But I have nothing definite to write to his majesty about him. Therefore, I have brought him before all of you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that as a result of this investigation, I may have something to write." for I think it is unreasonable to send on a prisoner without specifying the charges against him. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. So Paul motioned with his hand and began his defense. Um, I'll be continuing on from verse two. Um, King Agrippa, I consider myself a fortunate fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusation of the Jews, and especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. The Jewish people all know the way I lived ever since I was a child, from the beginning of my life in my own country, and also in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time and can testify, if they are willing, that I conform to the strictest sect of our religion, living as a Pharisee. And now it is because of my hope in what God has promised our ancestors that I am on trial today. This is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. King Agrippa, it is because of this hope that these Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider, why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. When a t- many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, King Agrippa, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goats. Then I asked, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. 
I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. First to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and then to the Gentiles, I preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. That is why some Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But God has helped me to this very day, so I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Messiah would suffer, and as the first to rise from the dead, would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defence. You are out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. I am not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I am saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice, because it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, Do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replied, Short time or long, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. The king rose, and with him the governor and Bernice, and those sitting with them. After they left the room, they began saying to one another, This man is not doing anything that deserves death or imprisonment. Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. This is the word of the Lord. Keep your Bibles open, please. We're going to have a look at chapters 24 to 25. And as you can see, I'm Michael. And I'm fairly normal. There's at least five witnesses here who may disagree with that. (laughs) But I am. Um, If you're a student, you'll notice that we've skipped a few chapters in Acts. Uh, So we're going to cover a little bit more than chapters 24 to 25, but we're really focusing on chapter 25. uh, Actually, chapter 26 tonight. Um, So I'm Michael, as I said. I grew up in a Baptist church. Um, Baptist churches, if you don't know, baptize people when they're adults normally, and the custom in our church was to baptize adults, but we had our own sort of liturgy at church, which consisted of someone who was getting baptized would give their testimony. Um, so they come up the front, they give their testimony, we had a big sort of pool uh, in our church, and they go and get baptized, they were dressed in white of course, because that's what you do, and then as they came up out of the water before someone put a towel around them, uh, as a church, we'd all sing every time, follow, follow, I will follow Jesus, if you know that chorus, but you probably don't because you weren't born in the 70s. Um, but anyway, I heard some pretty good, thank you for nodding, no, I heard some, some pretty good testimonies over the years, and, and I often wished I had a spectacular testimony. Um, you know, like I'd been converted from a life of evil and drugs and axe murdering and, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, something more interesting than basically, well, I was born in a Christian family and I sort of was always a Christian and was a pretty good little kid. Sometimes I wasn't that good, but got to university and sort of understood the gospel and, you know, now I'm a Christian. Sort of seemed a bit ho-hum as a testimony. Paul, on the other hand, has a very spectacular testimony. 
He was converted as he was on his way to try and kill people. That's a spectacular testimony. And Paul's testimony is very important in Acts. I don't know if you've noticed, but it's been repeated three times. Luke, Luke thinks it's important, and he thinks we should know about it. And in this section of Acts, the, the passage we're going to look at today, the, the story is built to a bit of a climax from about chapter 20, um, from what we saw last week. Paul is on his way to Jerusalem. And here, the climax is when Paul meets King Agrippa and tells him about how he met the risen Jesus and what it meant for him. So that's what I want to have a look at tonight, this, this encounter between Paul and Agrippa, and see why Luke thinks we should know about this, why this is important. And so between last week and this week, Paul has met a lot of people. So last week he was in Ephesus, or he wasn't actually in Ephesus, he was in Miletus, and he was farewelling people from Ephesus because he was on his way to Jerusalem. And despite several prophetic warnings that, that he had, including one guy, Agabus, came right down from, uh, from a long way away to tell him that the Holy Spirit had said to him that if he went to Jerusalem, he was going to be bound and imprisoned. And nevertheless, Paul was not dissuaded by these prophecies. And he sets his face towards Jerusalem, and he goes to Jerusalem, and he gets bound and imprisoned. And from basically chapter 21 right to the end of Acts, Paul is a prisoner. And unlike Peter, no angels come and rescue him. Now, given Paul is the focus of the story here, and the idea of, of Acts is that we see the gospel going to the ends of the world, this is looking a little bit tricky because Paul is now stuck in a jail. And despite riots and plots and assaults, Paul is not silenced. In fact, rather than silence him, arresting him gives him a platform to speak about Jesus to a whole bunch of people. And this is because Jesus is still alive. And Jesus is working out his plans to tell lots of people about himself. This is because Jesus has an unstoppable plan and so Paul gets a new platform. And yet it's not looking good for Paul. And, and when Paul is looking pretty sad about this, Jesus actually appears to him one night. Again. And he stands beside him and he says to him, Take courage. Because as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you are also going to testify in Rome. And despite the fact that this is the climax, we'll hear about Rome next week. What happens there? So Paul needs this because pretty much every time he speaks, almost every time he opens his mouth, at least in this section, there's a riot and people want to kill him. Now, not everyone's like that. A few people show some interest. Uh, there's a guy called a, a, a Roman tribune, Claudius Lysias. He's interested in Paul, but it's sort of a bit more curiosity. And when Paul meets him, or in fact he rescues Paul several times from, from riots, he discovers that dealing with Paul is a bit above his pay scale, and so he sends Paul up the chain to the governor. And so, after meeting this guy, Paul meets Felix. And when Paul meets Governor Felix, Felix listens, and he wants to hear more. And so Paul talks to him quite a bit, but the message gets a bit close to the bone, and so he shoes him away and sends him back to jail, and Paul ends up in prison for two years while Felix, from one, one side, sort of keeps the Jews from hassling him, and on the other side, he's trying to shake Paul down for a bribe. But then when we get to our passage today, 
Felix has been replaced by Festus. Porcius Festus, he probably got teased at school, uh, comes onto the scene. Luke doesn't tell us this, but, uh, but if you read the history of the time, Felix was actually sacked. Uh, he wasn't doing a great job, and so he gets booted, and Festus gets put in place. And then we're back to square one. Paul's forced to defend himself again, and he shows Festus there is no case to answer. But like Felix before him, Festus is trying to carry favour with the Jewish authorities, and so he doesn't cast out these, uh, these accusations. And in fact, trying to do a favour for the Jews, because he doesn't want to end up like Felix, in chapter 25, verse 10, just before our passage, he offers Paul the option of an unfair trial in Jerusalem. And Paul, of course, is not tempted by this and unsurprisingly declines and exercises his right as a Roman citizen and he goes over Festus's head and says, I'm going to appeal to Caesar. And so in uh, verse 10 of chapter 25, he says, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal. This is where I ought to be tried. I've done nothing wrong to the Jews. You know this very well. The evidence is there. But if I'm a wrongdoer and if I deserve to die, well, I'm not going to escape death. I'll go there. But if there's nothing to these charges against me, then you can't give me up to them. And in dramatic flourish, I appeal to Caesar. And so Festus says, well, off you go then. You can go to Caesar. Now Festus now finds himself in a bit of a problem. He's in a bit of a catch-22 because if he sends Paul to Caesar on charges that are obviously false... He's going to get in trouble because the idea is you send these cases to Caesar because he's got lots to do and he needs to deal with the really hard ones. So he'll get in trouble if he sends Paul on. But on the other hand, if he lets Paul go, the Jews are going to hassle him and agitate to have him removed just like they did with Felix. So Festus is in a bit of a bind. But along comes King Agrippa. And Festus thinks he might get some ideas from Agrippa on how to deal with this guy Paul or at least, if it all goes bad, share the blame around And so that's where we got to the reading that we read tonight. Paul meets Agrippa. And Agrippa says, I would like to hear from Paul. And so Felix gathers a very impressive collection of very important people. And Paul is brought in, presumably in his prison clothes, into this big audience center in the palace. And Festus opens the proceedings. And he says, King Agrippa, in verse 24... Chapter 25, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. Well, actually he hadn't. Uh, And as he himself, sorry, he had found that. And as he had appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. Well, He didn't really actually have a choice. When Paul appealed, he had to send him. Festus uh, uh, is quite good at gilding the lily here. And he says, I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. That's to Caesar. And of course, he does have something definite. He could say he's actually innocent. Um, But he says, therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa. So it's quite a sort of a pompous little situation But it's also quite dramatic. There's a lot of important people here. And Luke wants wants us to see that something important is about to happen here. 
And in fact, if you read through and, and you, rec- you remember what happened in, in the Gospels, it's eerily like Jesus' trial. Now, Paul doesn't go in to get crucified. Not now. But this might be Luke's subtle way of suggesting that things are not going to end very well for Paul. Uh, we'll have to see. The story continues. So, 26 verse 1, King Agrippa says, Paul, speak. You've got the floor. And so Paul begins. And he says, I consider myself fortunate that is before you, King Agrippa, I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. And on he goes. See, Paul realizes that he's, he's very blessed here. This is actually a great opportunity, despite the fact that he's in jail. He's actually been commanded to speak to the first century equivalent of the prime minister and the governor general and the chiefs of the army and all the important men of business, I don't know, the Australian Chamber of Commerce or whatever the equivalent was, and all their mates. They're all there waiting to hear from this little guy who's a prisoner. And so Luke's built this up, and we're primed for a great speech. This is Paul. This is the guy who wrote half the New Testament. This is Paul who's converted half of Asia. What's he going to say? What do you think he'll say? He doesn't... He says he's defending himself, but he doesn't actually really defend himself. If you read the previous speeches that he's given, he does defend himself there. But here... He does something very simple, but it's very powerful. He just tells them his story from when he was a kid until today. So in verse 4, you see, he says, my, My manner of life from my youth, from when I was a kid, spent from the beginning among my own nation in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. And he goes on and he describes his life. You know, This is how I got to be me. This is how I got to be this follower of Jesus. This is how I got to be in this situation. I grew up in a religious family. I took it seriously, a bit too seriously in, in the end. But I believed everything I was taught. And here I am now because I believe what my fathers and their fathers and their fathers before them since forever believed. And he says what they believed was the hope in God's promise. And that hope was the promise to be a savior, to save them from their sin and their inability to live like God wants them, to bring them into a new and better life in his presence. It was sort of like a restoration of Eden. And yet at that stage of his life, Paul hadn't really seen the light. He actually thought Jesus was a fake. He was someone who promised life, who promised salvation, who said he was this great savior, who said he was God, and then he couldn't actually even save himself and he died. And Paul says, I was, I was trapped in this sort of dark, satanic lie. And just like Satan is a liar and a killer, I became this killer. And so in verse 10 he says, I, I not only locked up many of the saints in prison, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And he says, in, in raging fury against them, I persecuted them. I think the NIV puts it, I was obsessed with getting these people Paul was blind to the spiritual truth that he was actually fighting against God. And he thought that Jesus was dead. And yet, Paul says, suddenly I met Jesus. And Jesus was very alive. And Jesus was very shiny. 
And Jesus was very bright. And it was so bright that it hurt. It was so bright that it, it knocked me off my horse and knocked everyone around me to the ground and knocked me to my knees. And when he met this Jesus that he was trying to kill and trying to punish and, and exterminate, or his followers at least, Jesus was actually very gracious with him. Jesus didn't say, well, I'm going to get you now. And he obviously had the power to, just his, his brightness was enough to knock him over. But instead with his enemy, he didn't give him what he deserved. He didn't give him a punishment. But he gave him light. And he gave him life. He came down from heaven, right down to Paul, and spoke in Paul's own language to him, he says. And he asked him, what are you doing, Paul? You're fighting against something good. You're wrong. You're actually fighting against me. And I'm actually alive. But I'm going to overlook your sin. I'm going to forgive you for your hatred, for your, for your murderous rage, for your rebellion. And I'm going to take you to be my servant. You're going to work for me now. And I'm going to take you out of your darkness. You can live in my light. You can trust in my goodness because I've got a job for you. I am alive, as you can see. And I'll be with you as you go and tell people about me. Tell people about my grace. And I will make it happen because I'm powerful. I will make it happen so you can tell everyone everywhere that I am alive and I am Lord. And you can tell them that they should repent. They should turn back from rebelling against me just like you have. Turn to God and live lives that show that they believe. And so Paul says to them, well, I didn't disobey, disobey, and that's pretty much what I've been doing ever since. And so Paul realized that, that Jesus actually really was who he said he was. Because he wasn't dead. He was alive. And you see what Paul is saying to Agrippa? It's not very complex. It's not, it's not difficult. It's just, this is how I met Jesus. And this is how he changed my life. That's what he does. Now, their reaction is not very positive. Felix yells at him and tells him, you're crazy. And Agrippa is sort of very patronizing. Paul's not put off, though. And he says, come on, you can do it. You can believe. I'll just pause for a minute. And we'll come back to that a bit later. Because what's going on here? Why? What, what's Paul convinced about? Well, it's obvious. Paul is convinced that Jesus is alive. And if you read these chapters, every time Paul speaks, he comes back to this fact that Jesus is alive. Because Paul understands that the resurrection proves that Jesus is God. Jesus said he was, and the fact that he raised, was raised from the dead proves he was. The fact that he died and is alive proves that he can do what he says he will do, which is raise people from the dead. And the resurrection means that he is alive, and therefore he's still around, and he can still do things. He can still help his people to live for him. And if you've been here for this series, that's what we've seen the whole way through Acts. Jesus is alive, and he's unstoppably achieving his plans to conquer the world. And so Paul says to them, why is it incredible that God would raise someone from the dead? See, if Jesus is God, why would this be a surprise? If Jesus is God, he can do anything. He can live, he can die, and he can live. And yet I think we often get a bit embarrassed by the resurrection. 
Or maybe that's just me. But when, when did you last pull out the resurrection in a conversation with someone? I think it's a bit embarrassing because we all know that people die and they don't come back. We all know that zombie movies are fiction. And yet we say we believe, just like Felix described it earlier, in a certain Jesus who was dead but who is now alive. Paul believes it. And the question that I think Luke wants to put to us is, do, do you really believe it? Have you met the risen Lord Jesus? See, the fact that Jesus is alive and with Paul rules and shapes everything in his life. Everything he does is governed by the fact that he is convinced that Jesus is alive and with him. And so Paul's life doesn't look like a normal middle-class first-century life. And again, the question is, does your life reflect that, what you believe? See, for Paul, it frees him up to do lots of things. He can live life joyfully. He's, he doesn't need to be frightened by all the what-ifs in life because he knows that even in the worst-case scenario, if, if all the different people who want to kill him actually kill him, he's still okay because Jesus can raise him from the dead and give him eternal life with God. That's why in one of his letters to one of the churches he planned, he says, to live is Christ, to die is gain. So do you live like that? See, Jesus, if, if Jesus is alive, you don't need to worry about the future. doesn't mean you don't need to be unconcerned about it, but you don't need to worry about it. You need to be wise. But whatever happens, if Jesus is alive, it means he's near. If Jesus is God, it means he's in control. And so you can make plans knowing that if everything falls apart and everything fails, Jesus won't fail. Because he's already dealt with the biggest problem that you have. And on a smaller scale, you can be free of things like fear of man. Because what can anyone do to you? Jesus already knows what you're like. He's already saved you. He already died and rose again for you. So whatever it is that you're, uh, that's, that's evil or sinful or bad or embarrassing, he's not going to go, actually, I'm going to take that back. He's already done it for you. He's not going to change his mind now. So you can mess up big time and Jesus will still be there. You don't need to fear failure. You don't need to be obsessed with success because Jesus already offers you everything. And so for Paul, earlier on when he's warned not to go to Jerusalem, he answers like this. He says, I am going to Jerusalem. I'm constrained. I'm bound by the Spirit. I don't know what's going to happen to me there except that the Holy Spirit says, wherever I go, I'm going to be uh, imprisoned and afflicted. And yet he says, I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. Because he knows he has another life waiting in Jesus. As he writes to the Ephesians, I'm seated in the heavenly places with Christ already. So he says, all I have to do is finish my ministry, finish my course. Finish what Jesus gave to me to do and testify to the gospel of grace of God. So Paul's life is directed towards sharing that good news with other people. But it's not just that. It also shapes how he approaches his life. When bad stuff happens, like we've seen in Acts, Paul's able to look at it and go, well, actually, this is part of Jesus' plan. This wasn't part of my plan, but this is part of Jesus' plan. And if you read Paul's letters to the, the churches in, in the New Testament, 
you see that no matter what the issue is that he's writing about, he always begins with the life, death, and particularly the resurrection of Jesus. And he looks at how does that speak into this situation? So in Colossians, for example, he says, Set your minds on the things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Paul knows that true because he's seen that glory. So the question for us is, how, how can we encourage each other to think this way? How can we encourage each other to think like Paul, to, to think in a more heavenly way? How can we encourage each other to live our lives as if Jesus' resurrection actually matters? You know, we can live our lives or we can live our lives as if Jesus is alive. Does that make a difference to you? But it's pretty hard because we live in a, a world that's obsessed with now and the near. And it's easy to get sucked into spending time and money and emotional energy into a whole pile of things that will never last. I think resurrection living looks, looks like holding lightly onto these things, things of the world. From the smallest things like a good coffee, that might be a big thing for you, to the biggest thing in your life, which might be your life. But it means we can enjoy lots of things without getting uptight about them. Because they don't really matter at the end of the day. But it also means holding tight to things that do matter. Things that will last forever, like gospel conversations, encouraging each other in godliness. See, Paul is able to speak of considering his life as if it has no value and giving up all comfort for the sake of the risen Lord Jesus. And that prompts us to think, okay, so what do we consider valuable? What's my level of comfort? Am I at the level of just giving up a coffee for the sake of the gospel? Am I at the level of suffering isolation and, and scorn at work because I believe that a man who died now lives? Or bigger things, am I willing to leave my friends and family and go to Tamworth like Sally and James, for example, or next week we'll meet the Adams who are going to Thailand? Or when I'm tempted to, to give in to this sin Persistent sin that I'm finding hard to conquer. Can I remember it's not worth it? Because Jesus offers me something far better. The fact that Jesus is alive means he can help because he's here. And he knows how to help in terms of sin because he was tempted. A couple of years ago in Chile, I was very low. Um, I felt overwhelmed by too many responsibilities. There were lots of difficult relationships. Uh, there was too much to do. I never got to the end of my list. I still have my list with me, and it's still, still not finished. And there was no end in sight. There were lots of people who, who I'd hoped would replace me, and one by one they all disappeared for, for good and bad reasons. And I spoke to a counselor, and the counselor reminded me that much of my problem was that I was actually living as if Jesus was dead. I would never have told you that, but I was actually behaving like a functional deist, like God had said, off you go, do this job, and see ya, I'm off for a coffee. And worse than that, he'd given me an impossible task and then left me to do it and said, you better do it because otherwise it's all going to fall apart. That's, that's how I was behaving. Like, like I had to sort everything myself. Uh, like I had to carry the weight of a Bible college. Um, and if I didn't, then, you know, God's plans for Chile would be stoppable. Well, it was a blessing to be reminded by a Christian brother that because Jesus is alive, 
just like he was with Paul. He's standing beside me to help me in my time of need, even when I don't see him or when I feel like he's distant. And when things didn't turn out like I expected, it actually didn't matter, in one sense. Because even though my plans were even bad plans, God had other plans, and they just weren't my plans. And I needed to remind her that, that he is alive, and so he's able to sort these things out, even if I can't do it, or even if it looks like the whole thing's failing. So because Jesus is alive, I can go to God. Jesus is there, pleading for me, every time I fail, every time I don't manage to do what I'm meant to do. And because he's alive and I'm in him, when God looks at Jesus, or when God looks at me, he sees Jesus. He sees his perfection and not my sin. Because he's alive, I have his spirit powerfully working in me to make me just like Jesus, to help me live just as he has been doing with every believer since Pentecost. And because he's alive, he's working to transform me and you, just like Jesus. And because there's a lot of us together in this, we can help each other. And because he's doing these things with me, I can share that with you to encourage you, and you can share with me to encourage me. And as he does those things in us, we can share with our neighbors what Jesus is doing. Now remember, I mentioned earlier, this is the climax of Acts. And we left the story for a little while when Paul told Agrippa that what he wanted more than anything else was for Agrippa and all those listening that Jesus, uh, that, that they would know Jesus as well. The question is, how did Agrippa respond? Paul offers him, do you believe? Come on, believe. And Agrippa goes, nah, maybe not. And then he leaves. And they all leave. And we get to the end of the chapter and no one's converted. And I think actually the, the, the chapter ends in the, the local Schenken and Agrippa and Festus are chatting over a goat's milk latte. And they sort of say, well, a bit of a shame really. This Paul, you know, he should have just gone free but now he's still in jail and he's going to go to Caesar and who knows what will happen. sort of meant to be a great climax, but it's actually a bit of an anticlimax. Now, if you haven't met Jesus, maybe this is your moment. Don't walk away like a gripper. Don't let it be an anticlimax. Meet Jesus tonight. Change your life. But is it really an anticlimax? Well, I don't think so. So I think Paul's, uh, Luke's point here is, is he built it up to take us to something pretty normal actually because I think the reason this passage is so important is because in many ways it's very normal now in many ways it's not we don't normally get to meet the prime minister and the governor general and so on but actually in its essence it's just one person telling other people about how he met Jesus and why it changed his life and I think it's tempting when we read Acts to think that normal is magic hankies and miracles but actually normal is normal people talking to other people about Jesus. It's the Holy Spirit changing people's lives. And in Acts, Luke shows us dozens of normal people, just like you, just like me, who meet Jesus, who join a group of Christians like us, and together as a community live for Jesus wherever they are. Lots of them are named. Philip, 
and his four daughters, Agabus, Aquila and Priscilla, Timothy, Crispus and his whole family, uh, Apollos, Erastus, Gaius, Aristarchus, etc., etc., etc. Go back and have a look. There's heaps of people there. And there's even more unnamed people all through Acts. See, if you meet the risen Jesus and he changes your life, then you actually have a great testimony. And the beauty is that it's your testimony. And it's easy to remember. And it's real and it's personal. And it's most likely very relatable to the people around us. And that's how the unstoppable Jesus works all the way through Acts, through the power of his spirit, even when people like us don't get it right. And so a great testimony is not actually about me, is it? It's all about Jesus and how he works through me. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that Jesus is alive and thank you that he is near and that he helps us. I pray that you will, through your spirit, uh, help us to live our lives as if Jesus is alive. Help us to see where we're not doing that and help us above all to be able to encourage each other to do that. And with that uh, testimony, help us live lives that that glow with the brightness of Jesus so that our neighbours, just like we heard earlier, will say, what's different about you? And so we can share why Jesus makes a difference. In Jesus' name. listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.